The Apostle Peter wrote in his second epistle that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. We know this catastrophe is the Genesis flood, which is described in detail in Genesis 6 through 8. More than just a natural disaster, the Bible describes the flood as God's great judgment upon mankind but also as an example of his infinite grace as he preserved Noah and his family throughout this cataclysm. Welcome to this week's broadcast of Science, Scripture, and Salvation. This month, the Institute for Creation Research is celebrating the 50th anniversary of the book that launched the modern creation science movement, The Genesis Flood, authored by Drs. Henry Morris and John Whitcomb. During the month of February, we will be presenting a special four-part series on the Genesis Flood through a vintage audio presentation by ICR's founder, Dr. Henry Morris. And now let's join Dr. Morris for part one of the Genesis Flood. At this time, we're going to be speaking on the theme of the Genesis Flood. I'm sure you're very familiar with the biblical story of the flood, but maybe you didn't know, or maybe you did know, that this is one of the events in the Bible which is under the greatest attack by those who don't believe the Bible. The flood is considered to be tradition or myth, anything but fact, and particularly in the world of geology, the science which deals with the history of the world, they say there was no such thing as a worldwide flood such as the Bible describes. Well, we maintain, of course, that the biblical story of the flood is absolutely true and that all of the real facts of science support it. I want to begin by reading a chapter, not a chapter, but a couple of verses of Scripture in the last chapter that the Apostle Peter wrote before he died. And he was looking forward to the last days. I believe we're in the last days. If not, we're certainly closer to them than anyone's ever been before. And this, therefore, would have more relevance to us than to anybody before us. And here's what he says. In, in the last days there shall come scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. That is, people will be saying, we don't believe in the great promises of God's purpose for the world. He's coming someday to accomplish all of His purposes, to restore all the good things that He had in the beginning. We don't believe that because since the fathers fell asleep, that is, they died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. The reason why people are able to reject the promises of God for the future is because they don't believe the record of what took place in the past. They say all things continue as they were not just from the end of the creation, but from the beginning of the creation. So therefore we can explain everything in the world today, everything that is existing today, everything that has existed in terms of natural processes which we study in science that have been going on just as they are now since the very beginning of time, the very beginning of the creation. And this is nothing but the philosophy of evolution, which says that we can explain all things in terms of processes that continue today. So this is a prediction 2,000 years ago of the dominance of the belief in evolution in the last days. That's of course being fulfilled today. But then the Apostle Peter goes on to say, for this they willingly are ignorant of. They ought to know better. The evidence is all against them. They willingly ignore the evidence. First that the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by the Word of God. That is God created the heavens and the earth by His own Word. And then secondly, the world that then was, literally the whole cosmos that then was, the heavens and the earth that existed then, being overflown or literally cataclysmically overwhelmed with water, perished. So the first cosmos, the heavens and the earth which were in the beginning, that God created in the beginning, those were destroyed in the great flood. And so he says if we recognize the tremendous evidence for creation and the flood, that we'll be able to have a full answer to the philosophy of evolution which will dominate the world in the last days. 
I remember when I was just a young Christian, I began to study the Bible and I was beginning to try to find answers to evolution, which I'd believed at that time as a college student. And I found that, uh, that this record of the Apostle Peter concerning the importance of the story of the flood in the last days as the real answer to evolution was the key to the understanding of earth history. And so I began to study geology. In fact, I went off to graduate school then to get my major in hydraulics, the study of water and geology as my minor, the study of the earth, because I could see that the story of the flood was the real key to the understanding of earth history. Uh, the book, The Genesis Flood, which was uh, co-authored by John Whitcomb of Grace Seminary and myself back in 1961, uh, the Lord used graciously to provide the sort of catalyst to develop the modern creationist movement because other people also could then begin to see the tremendous importance of the great flood. So even though many people today reject the story of the flood and they consider it simply a fable or a tradition, the fact is that it provides the real answer to the study of earth history. So that's what I'd like to discuss today. Now because the world of scholarship and science for the most part rejects the idea of the flood, many Christians have become intimidated by this and have tried to compromise on this issue. They have said, well, the story of the flood has to be reinterpreted. For example, they say that either the flood was just a, a local flood, it was not a worldwide flood, or if it did cover the world, it just rose up so quietly and went down so softly that it left no record. But neither of those theories will hold at all. The, sto the, the story of the Bible is very plain in teaching a worldwide cataclysmic destructive deluge in the days of Noah. As far as the idea of a local flood is concerned, I don't know how any Christian who believes the Bible could read a local flood into the story of the, of the Scriptures. All you have to do is read the 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth chapters of Genesis, and you'll see that it's clearly talking about a worldwide, world-destroying flood. For example, it says that the waters went up for five months and covered all the mountains, every high hill under the whole heaven, every mountain was covered with water. And then it says they began to go down, and finally on the, at the end of the 150 days, the five-month period, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat, where there have been many reports that people have come back with from time to time that they have seen the remains of the ark still on Mount Ararat. At any rate, it rested on Mount Ararat probably because it's the highest mountain in the whole region. And it then says, after it rested on the 150th day, that then it was another two and a half months before they could even see the tops of the other mountains. So evidently it was on the highest mountain. And then it was a whole year before they could come out of the ark. And Mount Ararat today is 17,000 feet high. Now, a local flood, you simply cannot have a 17,000 foot high year-long local flood. Hydraulically, that simply is impossible. It wouldn't be. And then, of course, there are other reasons. The uh, story says that God promised He would never send this flood again to Noah. And if it was only a local flood, He didn't keep His promise because there have been devastating local floods all over the world all, all the time since. And so, it wasn't a local flood. In fact, in one of my books, the Genesis record, the commentary on Genesis, there's an appendix giving a hundred reasons, both biblical and geological reasons, why the flood was worldwide. So we have to recognize that the Bible is talking about a worldwide flood, and as far as the idea of a, of a tranquil, non-destructive worldwide flood is concerned, uh, a tranquil flood, that's even more impossible. You know from your own experience, maybe you've been in floods, at least you've read about them, you know that even small local floods today can be, do tremendous amount of damage and can do a great amount of erosion and great amount of geological deposition. And then to say that a worldwide flood wouldn't leave any record is simply absurd. A, a worldwide tranquil flood is about like a worldwide tranquil explosion. Simply impossible. You can't have any such thing. 
So we have to recognize that the Bible does teach plainly that there was a worldwide, world-destroying flood in the days of Noah. People have said, for example, that the ark that Noah built couldn't possibly hold two of every species of animal. And they build up big stories about how there are millions upon millions of different species of animals. And the Bible says that Noah took two of every kind of animal into the ark, and so it's impossible. And even the popular children's books that you have, they show a little kind of a little boat with a few animals going into it. And they think it's just a sort of a children's story that couldn't possibly be really true. But the fact is that the ark was a tremendous structure. The dimensions are given in the Bible in terms of cubits. Now, nobody knows exactly what a cubit was. Most of them, most people think it was probably about 18 inches. But the smallest number that I've ever seen quoted for the cubit was 17 and a half inches. And if you assume that that's what it was, which is the smallest that anybody's ever suggested, then the dimensions turn out to be uh, still very uh, substantial structure, almost as big as the greatest ocean-going vessels today. And you can calculate, uh, if you want to, the, the ark is described in the Bible as having three stories to it with uh, cells or nests or cages for the animals. And then you have to ask, well, how many animals were in the ark? We don't know exactly, of course, because we don't know how many different kinds of animals there were in the original creation. But we do know this, that Noah did not have to take the fishes on the ark or the other marine animals or the insects, the animals like that, that uh, occupy the greatest number of species. So if you take the land animals, the birds and the mammals and the reptiles and amphibians, the ones that might have to be on the ark, and take two of every known kind or known species of those, there's 17,000, 18,000 species of living animals like that. And then you double that for two of each kind of animal. And then you maybe double that again for the extinct animals like dinosaurs and other animals that don't exist today. And of course, there are not near as many extinct animals known as there are living animals. So uh, at the very most, uh, you would only have to have uh, about that many animals, uh, say 18,000 times maybe four, 72,000 some, some odd animals. How many animals could the ark hold? Well, the capacity of the ark was the equivalent of 522 standard railroad stock cars, which carry animals. And it's known that each one of those could carry 240 sheep. So if you multiply 240 by 522, you get 125,000 or so sheep-sized animals that could be on the ark. And the ark only had to have about 70,000 animals at the very most. And of course, a sheep is a large animal. There are a few big animals like elephants and dinosaurs maybe, but, only, but most animals are small like rabbits and mice. And so if you say the average size was a sheep, we're being very generous. And consequently, we come to the conclusion that the ark was big enough to hold two of every species of land animal, living or extinct, that we know anything about, and about half of its capacity. That means there's plenty of room on the ark for animals, for food for the animals, for water for the animals, for Noah and his family to play shuffleboard, whatever they want to do while they were in the ark for a year. And the whole story, you see, becomes silly if it's only a local flood. Didn't have to have an ark that big to preserve life through a local flood. In fact, you don't have to have an ark at all. Because in the year that it took, or the 120 years actually, that it took Noah to build the ark, he and his family could have moved out to Costa Mesa or somewhere, and the birds could have, they fly thousands of miles to get away from bad weather, and animals migrate. So there wouldn't have been any need for an ark at all if it was a local flood. So the Bible is very plain. It was a worldwide flood, and the Bible indicates that the ark was plenty big to hold two of every land animal that we know anything about. Now another question that people have raised about the ark is, if it was such a violent flood as we're talking about, wouldn't it have just completely been capsized by the great waves that a worldwide flood 
would produce. No, it wouldn't. As a matter of fact, the dimensions of the ark are so carefully chosen by God, He was the one who designed it for Noah, told him how to make it, how long and wide and high to make it, that uh, it was just ideally designed to be stable in the water. I didn't have to swim fast through the water. That wasn't a, the purpose of it. The purpose was simply to be stable. And the dimensions of the ark were so carefully designed that it was practically impossible to capsize. If the ark was tilted over by a wave to where it was uh, at a big angle of tilt, even almost as much as 90 degrees, that the uh, weight of the ark, which would go down through its center of gravity, was always inside of the buoyant force, which is outside, and would tend to bring it back up again. So always there's going to be a writing moment, as it's called, to bring the ark back into a stable position. Uh, some people doubted that when we told them that a number of years ago. They were making a film on the story of Noah's Ark. And so they had a, one of the prominent hydraulic laboratories with a big wave tank in their laboratory to make a model of the ark and test it to see. And sure enough, they found that there was no way they could generate waves violent enough and big enough to capsize the ark. Thanks for listening to this week's broadcast of Science, Scripture, and Salvation from the Institute for Creation Research. Now celebrating over 40 years of ministry, ICR wants you to be equipped with resources that you can count on. To learn more about the Genesis Flood, get your copy of this classic book through the ICR store. Call 800-628-7640 and speak to a customer service representative. Or visit our store online at www.icr.org for this and other creation science resources. And ask about your free subscription to ICR's monthly magazine, Acts and Facts, which gives you timely news on science from a biblical perspective, as well as in-depth articles on biblical apologetics and the creation-evolution debate. Call 800-628-7640 or go online to icr.org for more information. Don't forget to mention the call letters of this station. Thanks again for listening to Science, Scripture, and Salvation.